Father, you are so good. You are eternal. Your word endures forever. Uh, We're like grass. We fade away. Uh, But your word remains forever. It does not change. And I ask you, Lord, that even though men would desire to change your word and twist it even to their own destruction, Father, I pray, give us discerning hearts, discerning minds, that we would be able to understand your word aright and be able to apply it right. Father, whether we like it or not, I ask you, Father, as we dig into this uh, teaching, biblical teaching on this concept of Hades and hell, I'm asking you, Lord, speak to our hearts. We know that there are some things out there in the world and they wrestle with this, but Father, it's to your truth that we turn. That's the only place that we can, not to men's opinions, but to the God who even created it. And so that's what we do right now. Enlighten us and speak to us through your scriptures, God. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so you may have heard this story before, but there was a gentleman who uh, was being, who, who had failed to follow Christ. He was being ushered into hell, and one of the demons was escorting him to different rooms in hell, and he comes to the first room, and everybody is standing on their heads in cement. And he looked at that, and he just thought, man, forever on my head in cement, show me the next room. So he goes to the next room, and it's one of those gymnasium-type floors that's all purpose and such. And he thought, well, you know, that's better than cement, but on my head for eternity, I, I just can't deal with that. So he says, show me the third room. And he goes into the, opens the door to the third room, and the demon says, this is it, this is it right here. This is the third room, this is the last one. And everybody is standing knee-deep in, in manure, but they're drinking coffee. And he thought, you know what? This isn't that bad. At least, you know, you get to drink coffee. I can deal with this. So he says to the demon, I'm going to, I'm going to take up residence here. So he goes into the room. No sooner does the door close behind him, but the taskmaster cracks the whip and he says, okay, everybody, coffee breaks over. Everybody on your heads. (laughs) Scripture does speak of hell. And no, you're not going to be standing on your heads in manure, okay? But you will be, and people will be enduring a punishment that is far more severe than that. Uh, even to the point where this concept of hell in, in not just our culture, but in cultures past seems to grate against the human nature to the point where there is something within man that wants to discard or erase this concept of hell. Dismiss it outright. It just, you know, it, it, it was just man's invention to scare us into following God type of approach. Um, now, don't get me wrong, I am not fully in favor of the Middle Ages depiction in their paintings of hell either. Um, and I, I, I fail to see any scripture passages, for example, with a demonic taskmaster whipping people, torturing them, and then say, okay, everybody on your heads. Or, you know, torturing them. Um, th- there, there's no mention of this in, in the scriptures. There is, however, at the end of Matthew 18, that talks about one who did not forgive, and he was turned over to what the scripture, in the Greek, it says he was turned over to the tormentors. Now, that is in this life, there is no transition that suddenly the guy died, at least in the parable, suddenly the guy died and ended up in prison. No, 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 no. In, in that life, he was then committed to the, the tormentors, the jailers. Um, 
and, and truly, I think that those who choose forgive, uh, unforgiveness, bitterness, grudges, hatred, those people will endure a demonic bondage and torment that Matthew 18 depicts. But that is not something that I see Scripture laying out for us concerning hell itself. So there are those that want to erase this concept of hell. It just seems so bad, and they wrestle with it. Others would say, okay, there, the Bible does talk about hell, okay, but they tend to want to say it's not eternal, or at least that it's a place that instantly consumes the wicked, so they stop existing altogether and is therefore temporary. So it was, this is called annihilationism. Does the scripture give any place to allow us to erase hell? Does it give us any place to define it as something that's very temporary, that's, that, that consumes us instantly and annihilates or causes the person to cease to exist? Which, I didn't write this down, but in all honesty, why on earth are they resurrected? Why are they even given their physical bodies? I mean, they were decayed as it was. Why don't they just vaporize their spirit why do why is there a resurrection of the dead that makes no sense if they're consumed instantly and cease to exist annihilationism i think we need to start this discussion off on this teaching biblical teaching of hell is is this right here we need to cross this bridge before we go any further and that is can hell be reconciled with God's eternal love. Can this idea of eternal torment in hell be reconciled with God's love? Now, I am not going to um, take the remainder of my time and philosophize about God except to very simply say this. If we have a problem with the concept of hell in view of God's love, and I get that, but here's why I get that. Because me, just like you, and just like the rest of the world, are finite creatures who do not understand the eternal love of, and the infinite love of God. It is, by definition, infinite and beyond our understanding. We can get glimpses of it. We can learn to implement it to, I think, a pretty decent degree in this life. We will always fall short, of course. But God's love is infinite. It is truly beyond our understanding. So how can we say the concept of hell does not line up with God's love? Right there, we're at a loss because we must confess, well, we don't understand God's love. So how can we even say that hell doesn't fit into that? Number two, we don't understand God's holiness, and therefore we don't understand this combination of love and holiness that is reconciled to bring about God's justice. Okay, so God being a just God, his holiness is infinite, then who am I to even say I can fathom the justice of God? It is beyond me. I can understand it to a degree. I'm challenged, scripture says, to understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and know this love that surpasses knowledge. I'm never going to understand Christ's love, but I am called to understand it as much as I can. I'm called to understand God's holiness as much as I can, but these concepts are beyond, are beyond me. 
So who am I to judge God or judge his word and say, you know what, this concept of hell just does not mesh with God's eternal love. I can't say that because I neither understand the, in, the infinitude of God's love and his holiness, therefore his justice. So I cannot say that. I cannot, therefore, bring my opinions of hell to the table to judge God or judge his word. Do you understand what I'm saying here? The only way in which I can reconcile this concept of hell and either accept it or reject it is by starting in the word of God. God wrote this word. I have to start there. I do not judge God based on his word and whether I like it or not whether I think it's logical or not. I'm dealing with eternal and infinite concepts here. So who, how can I, with my finite, limited wisdom, judge God and concepts like hell or justice or the, the, the saying to, to the people of Israel, go and wipe out entire nations? Who am I to judge God on these things? Because they are in this realm of God's justice, which is beyond me. So... I'm going to say we need to start with Scripture. We need to fairly discern it. We need to understand it as best we can, comparing Scripture with Scripture, come to conclusions, and that is what is truth. Not my best guess or my opinion that I weigh God on. I'm not placing him on the scales of my personal opinions. Scripture does say this. In Revelation 14, 9-11, it says, The third angel followed me and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on, a hand, on his hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. There is such a thing as the wrath of God. He is not so totally love. I'm, I'm not reading scripture here, if you were wondering. Um, he is not so full of love that he cannot express wrath. And that wrath is, is directed towards those who have chosen to rebel, i.e. sin, and that is all of us. It goes on and says, he, referring to that one who's enduring this wrath, he will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commands and receive and remain faithful to Jesus. Skipping over to Revelation 21.8, it says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, <clears throat> excuse me, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. It's also called the lake of fire in other places in Revelation. My point here is that hell is spoken of very graphically. And it, is, it truly is a place of torment. So as we go to Scripture, we have to be careful that even though we may find this offensive to our personal understanding of what we think love is, 
we have to say scripture is right and I must be wrong. Scripture, this truly is within the logic of God. And it makes total sense to him. And we could discuss further this and philosophize further about this concept of eternal punishment. I've mentioned, <laughs> I've mentioned to you in the past, and I'm going to be very brief with this, that if our offense is an offense against the infinite holiness of God, our offense therefore is an infinite offense. How do you punish an infinite offense? Okay, it must be punished infinitely. You can never, I can never, as a finite creature committing an infinite offense, my punishment can never satisfy this need for justice. It, it can't. But there is one who did satisfy this justice of God, and that was his son Jesus, who being in the infinite nature of God, taking on the finite nature of man, yet remaining infinite in his nature, he is the one who stepped in and endured that punishment for me, and therefore the equation, if you will, is balanced, and he can endure that infinite punishment upon uh, uh, the infinite punishment for my infinite offense that was placed upon him. So he and only he, not me, not any finite creature, could ever satisfy that need for justice for infinite offense. Except Jesus. Except Jesus. So here's what I want to do. I, I want us to start now and look at this concept of Hades. Uh, many times Hades is confused with hell. Uh, many times the word Hades is actually translated hell in the NIV. I disagree with that translation. I understand, though, why they translate it that way. Um, but the truth is that for us to understand Hades, number one, we need to go back into the Old Testament. But to do that, I'm going to go into the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, and the Old Testament is quoted there. We don't find the Hebrew word Sheol. We find the Greek word Hades, or Hades, right there in Acts chapter 2. And we find, if we were to be good students, we find that Sheol is would best be defined. If we were to just study all the passages, it would be defined in, in two different ways. Number one, Sheol is either the place of the dead in general, righteous and unrighteous, um, and that would be physical death. So the physical bodies are in Sheol, which the NIV, I think, fairly translates as the grave. So when my, when I die, my body goes into Hades or Sheol, that meaning the grave. There are other passages that <clears throat> are very clear that this place, uh, Sheol, is something more than that. And therefore, we need to expand our understanding of Sheol to include another aspect, another definition, if you will, and that is a place of punishment for the wicked. <clears throat> and this, of course, would be for the spiritually dead. That would therefore be the spirit. We actually do see this. We're going to look at it in, in Luke 16. But I want us to see how Sheol 
is used then in Acts chapter 2, <clears throat> because this is a quote from the Old Testament, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 26. He is talking about the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, <clears throat> and he says, therefore my heart is glad, and my soul, my tongue rejoices, this is David's saying this, my body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to Sheol, or Hades, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Can I ask you, is he referring to this place, is he referring to the grave, or is he referring to the place of the uh, departed spirits who are wicked and being punished? Which definition of Sheol, or Hades, is being implemented here? Okay. Uh, look at that. Now, if it's the spirit, understand that he's saying you're not going to abandon me in Sheol. And so this then is a messianic psalm. At least Peter is telling us. Therefore, it relates to Jesus being in the grave. And he's, and in essence, the father did not abandon me in Sheol. Um, many would say that Jesus went to hell, but can I ask you, did David go to hell? No, he didn't. I, I think we need to be firm on that. David did not go to hell. I think we also should be firm that Jesus didn't go to that place called hell, though some interpret certain passages uh, in that way. I, I disagree with those those uh, interpretations of those verses, but I I don't think that this verse supports that. Because there are two definitions for Sheol, two definitions for Hades, and I think we're going to need to say David did not go to Sheol <clears throat> and then say, but you will not abandon me there. You will not, you're not going to leave me in, in hell. Now, David would be referring to, you know, you're, you're not going to completely leave me in the grave, you will one day resurrect me. But this is referring to um, this is referring to the Messiah who would not be left in the grave. And so I'm going to suggest it's not spiritual. It, it it must be the physical. So in this particular usage here, translating Sheol with Hades, it is a it is the grave. But it is more often used to, to refer to that place that would include torment and therefore be the place of the wicked departed spirits. Uh, turn with me to Luke 16. We've actually looked at this passage before, so I'm not going to spend too much time with it, but I want to refresh our memories perhaps. Lazarus and the rich man. Um, Lazarus was a poor beggar. Now we're not talking about Lazarus that was raised from the dead in Luke 11. We're talking about Lazarus who was... Uh, in this story, now it doesn't say that it's a parable, so I'm going to challenge us, let's be careful that we don't impose the concept of parable, because once you introduce the concept of a parable, you now allow yourself to use imagery, because parables do that. Parables take things that are natural in this life and then use them to apply, to be applied into the heavenly realm or the spiritual things. That's the purpose of a parable. This is not that. This is a spiritual teaching at the get-go. 
It is not a, it is not placed in our human surroundings. It's not placed in, um, stuff that we go through day to day that Jesus' other parables did. Okay? This is not a heavenly story told in earthly circumstances. This is spiritual at its core. And so it, I'm going to suggest this is not a parable. This is a story that Jesus either knows of personally, and that is possible, or it's one that he shares. But let's just, from the get-go, start off, this is not a parable. Therefore, it doesn't use parabolic language. So when he talks about fire, he's talking about a real fire. Okay? He's not talking about imagery here. So... Let's look at this. In, in verse 22, it says, The time came when the beggar died. He was righteous. Lazarus was not. And the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in, excuse me, but Hades. There he was in torment. That is Lazarus. Excuse me, the uh, rich man. Lazarus was in Hades in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, a pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received his bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go over from, from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And so he, 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 can, he, he asks them, you know, can you at least warn my family? And Abraham replies to that. But this speaks of Hades as a place of torment, a place of fire. He's looking to just have uh, Lazarus's tongue, Lazarus's finger dipped in water and then placed on his tongue. So this is this is something that he is he's in tremendous agony. There's fire, um, and it is very real. It is not in in the context of a parable. So I want us to to turn to Second Peter chapter two verse nine, and this is a passage we have looked at, but in a different context, looking at. Uh, this concept of soul sleep, so we're not going to do that. But I want us to see this concept of Hades, and it is pretty clearly defined and drawn out for us here. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Leanne, do you have it? Yeah. If you could read it out loud for us. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Okay. Describe this place to me. Hades. Okay, but just by the verse itself, de- describe it to me. Let's make some observations. A holding area. It's a holding area, okay, for... Okay, they're being punished. How long does this last? I'm sorry? 
until the day of judgment. Okay, so on the day of judgment, this particular aspect of punishment will cease, but then scripture makes it very clear, such as in Revelation 20, that there will be a different type of punishment. It, it Hell, uh, from best we can understand, seems very similar to Hades in its punishment, but all I can say is that it is different. Okay? There are certain elements of it we'll look at that are that are different. Now, this passage makes it clear that when we die, if we have not lived a righteous life following after Jesus, believing in him, then we will suffer this type of torment. Uh, it doesn't call it Hades here, but fair enough to say this is what the rest of Scripture calls Hades. This is that holding place for punishment until the day of judgment. Leanne? Um, righteous life can be momentary, right? Just righteous? You, just before you die, if you accept Jesus before you die? Sure, just like the thief on the cross. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um. <clears throat> I'm not suggesting that we are saved by our righteousness. That is not what I mean here. Scripture does talk about the resurrection of the righteous. It doesn't call it the resurrection of those who believe in Jesus. Not that it's because they didn't believe in Jesus. They certainly did. But the Scripture talks about, focuses on the fruit of the faith, not just the faith. All right, And, and so I'm doing that as well. The fruit is righteousness. The seed that's been planted that makes the tree good is, the, is faith in Jesus. Okay, so there is this place called Hades, but then there is also this place called hell. It is different than Hades. I'm going to get into something that's not in your notes, but we're going to look at some um, descriptions of, of hell. It's called the Lake of Fire that we just read about, the Lake of Burning Sulfur. Um, burning sulfur. Uh, any idea what is burning sulfur like, Brian? Is it is it like napalm of sorts? Gunpowder um, is basically sulfur, something to provide oxygen to it. It'll burn right away. Okay. So it's not. It doesn't just explode, but it can just burn, I suppose. Okay. And so it is burning sulfur. A lake of burning sulfur. Um. This is also called, in Revelation 2014, it's called the second death. So this we've looked at this, first death being physical death, second death being spiritual death, and that is eternal. Let's look at some of these uh, concepts in Matthew. Write these passages down, Matthew 22, 13, and 25, 30. Um, while you're writing those down, I'm going to do my best to quickly turn there and read those to you. 22, 13, it says, Then the king told the attendants, tie, this is in a parable, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we see that there is this concept of outside. There is this concept of darkness. King James, I believe, calls it, just puts it together, outer darkness. Um, and there's this concept of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, in chapter Matthew 25, verse 30, <clears throat> it says, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we come across this concept of 
outside or outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. As we look at Matthew 13, we see even more descriptions. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read that portion. And this is very important right now. And, and I say it's important because those who want to deny the existence of hell or even play it down, they say that there is a problem with these descriptions of hell because they're always in the context of parables and therefore use symbolic language to describe them. So they then try to say hell is very different as a result of that. And, and I firmly disagree with this. And, and we're going to see that that can't be the case in what I'm about to read because the parable of the weeds and the wheat uses parabolic language. It says things like, um, at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Okay? Symbolic language. Taking weeds. The weeds would represent what? Loud. Non-believers, sinful. Okay, the, the wicked. Um, tying them in bundles, kind of like in gr grouping them together. Um, and then what's going to happen is going to throw, they're going to be burned in fire. Um, is that symbolic of something? Or that they're going to be burned, excuse me, they're going to be burned. <clears throat> the, the chaff is going to be burned up. That would be symbolic of hell. So now I'm going to read Jesus's interpretation of this. So Jesus' purpose is to say this is that. The weeds are the sons of the devil. The wheat are the sons of the kingdom, etc. So he's going to extract symbolism from the parable and just give us a plain rendering of this teaching. When he does that and he extracts the symbolic, this is what he says in verse 42. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the question has got to be, you know what? If there is no symbolism in this, what are we left with? Or would they use the term literal? Yes. This is a literal understanding then of hell. This happens after the judgment. I would venture to say that the parables in chapter 14 um, that refer to this concept of the end of the age speak of that day of judgment and then afterward the righteous being rewarded and the wicked being burned in a fiery furnace. We see the concept of firing being thrown into the fiery furnace again in verse 50, and weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I, I think if Jesus is giving them an interpretation and his purpose is to extract the symbolic to give us a plain, literal rendering, we cannot say the fire is symbolic. Okay? But here's what we need to wrestle with. What does fire give off? Heat and smoke and light. So if hell it gives off these things, how is it that these people who are thrown there are cast into outer darkness? If fire gives off light. Stephen? It's not like it's not God's light. You know, like because here on earth, like 
know, even non-believers experience, like, God's common grace, but when they go to hell, like, there will be no grace, like, at all. And so, like, the grace that, like, it makes the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous fields and all these types of things mm-hmm. won't be, won't be there. Right. And, and I think it's fair to say that what Stephen is getting at is the presence of God, that there will be no presence of God, no grace of God there at all. And we, we see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, that they, that, they, that they will not be in the presence of his majesty, okay? But they will be suffering eternal destruction. And so we do have this concept of there is darkness and there is fire. We have to be careful in saying, because this seems contradictory, therefore the fire is not real. The fire is symbolic. Um, let's realize that as we, and I'm going to skip down here where it says the lake of fire number B, uh, letter B, it's, it says includes the body. Matthew 5.29 says that if your right hand offends, you cut it off. It's better that you go through life maimed than your whole body intact that you, with with um, your your hand intact, is thrown both body and soul into hell. In the next passage, there, what is it? Matthew ten, um, yeah, verse chapter ten, verse twenty eight. It says, "Don't fear man who can kill you, but fear God who can throw both body and soul into hell." It is the body and the soul that is the resurrected body of the wicked. The body and soul of the wicked that is thrown into hell. The body and the soul is not thrown into Hades. So let's understand then that this fire is a different type of fire. It burns, because that's what we're told. It is called, this lake of fire is also called a furnace in Matthew 13 that we read. A fiery furnace. Um, the This fire... It burns, but does not consume, okay? It burns the body, the resurrected body, but cannot or does not consume that resurrected body. Do you remember Moses when he encountered the burning bush? When he came to it, what does he say? The bush burned, but the fire did not consume it. And so I'm going to suggest to you that whatever fire that was that was igniting the bush, uh, it's very probable that it's a very similar type of fire, not figurative or symbolic. It is just a type of fire that we have never experienced. So how does Jesus or anyone in our human language describe something to us that we have never experienced? How do I describe red to a blind man? do the best I can, but the bottom line is it's going to fall short. How do I describe a fire that you have never, ever experienced before? I can try, but I'm going to fall short. And so that's the type, that, that's the problem, if you will, that Jesus or any author of the New Testament has in describing hell. Because it is, it is not something that is in our realm. It's not, the people who are thrown there, um, they have bodies that are immortal. They cannot be consumed. And so we're going to get into that, though, in just a moment moment here with annihilationism. Um, We need to realize that this fire is 
the though it, though it is though it, it gives off light um does not necessarily mean that there is complete darkness it just says that there's darkness when you look out into outer space do you see darkness or do you see total light you see darkness but you do see some light okay so so when I look up at the sky and I say, oh, it's dark out there, I'm not saying that I don't see any light. <laughs> so again, we just need to be careful that Jesus is not contradicting himself, and we shouldn't feel that it's fair to assume that these fires are figurative because of that, okay? These are very real. They do burn. They do torment. <clears throat> so what I want to do right now is I want us to ask some very important questions at this point. We've looked at the symbols, um, and yet we have also seen as we move into pictures like in, Re in Matthew 13, we're outside the context of a parable, and yet it describes it with terms of fire and torture, pain, etc. And so we need to ask this question, John 3.16. It says, God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We need to ask ourselves, what does that word perish mean? When we come to first, excuse me, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, it uses this term concerning the rebellious, the, the punishment of the wicked. It uses this term everlasting destruction. There are those who hold to a teaching of annihilationism that suggest that these two words, they don't just suggest, they flatly state it, these two words definitively tell us that when someone is cast into <coughs> hell, they are momentarily burned up and therefore cease to exist. And they say that must be the conclusion from these words perish and destruction. Well, let me ask you, when the Bible says, and it uses the same Greek word, that they planned to destroy Jesus, does that mean they, tend, they wanted to obliterate him so that he no longer existed? Or does it mean they just wanted to kill him? If you look at your NIV, it translates that same Greek word, destroy, it translates it, kill. So, I, there's an example right there that would suggest the word destroyed does not mean to annihilate or cease to exist. The wineskins, that if you pour new wine into old wineskins, the old wineskins will burst, so don't do that. The old wineskins, the Greek word is that's used there is, they will be destroyed. Does that mean that when you pour new wine into these wine, old wineskins, that when they rupture, they suddenly vanish in front of you? No, it just simply means they rupture. They break open. They're still there. They're just rendered useless. So this word destroy does not mean to annihilate, obliterate, cause something or someone to cease to exist. And same with the word perish. So we need to be very careful because <clears throat> uh, in Matthew 13 that we saw, outside of symbolism, it spoke of a fiery furnace. Um, in Matthew 25, 
Many people call this the parable of the sheep and goats, but I'm going to suggest to you this parable has nothing to do with sheep and nothing to do with goats, except to simply say that they are separated like the sheep and separated like the goats. <clears throat> and that's all that Jesus had in, 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 intended. Um, there, is not, there are no trappings of the kingdom of God is like that would suggest it's a parable. So this is a clear teaching. Follows on the heels of several parables, but it's a teaching. And in this teaching, he says in verse 41, to those on the left, depart from me, you who are accursed into the eternal fire. So here's my question. If the fire of hell is eternal, but according to the annihilationist view, when all the wicked are thrown into it, they're burned up immediately. Why does that fire need to be eternal? wouldn't need to be. Once it's done its job, it's done. There's no need for it. Let's get rid of it, but it's called eternal. Okay? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It says in, in Mark 9, 47 and 48, which is a quote from Isaiah 66, 24, it says that their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In other words, the fire doesn't go out. It's eternal. Now, I read at the very beginning of class from Revelation 14. And in Revelation 14, those who did not believe in Jesus, that had taken the mark of the beast, it says that they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And it says, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. This idea of forever and ever is not symbolic. It truly does mean forever and ever, eternally. The smoke of their torment. They're being tormented and they're being burned and their smoke rises forever. When do we have smoke? When something's burning, okay? <coughs> so something must be, if it's wood that's being consumed, there's going to be smoke. Um, if something's not being consumed, number one, you're not going to have fire, okay? Something feeds the fire, right? Uh, but the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. When the flesh burns, it will produce smoke, and if the smoke lasts forever, so does the flesh. By flesh, I mean the resurrected body of the wicked, and it endures forever. And so we need to realize that this is something that's eternal. Some people have suggested that this concept of forever and ever is symbolic, um, but when you get to the use of that phrase forever and ever in uh, chapter 20, verse 10, where the devil is thrown into the same place where the beast and the false prophet are, the lake of burning sulfur, the lake of burning sulfur is the very same place that the wicked are thrown into. It says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And the way the Greek reads, it's, it's, and even annihilationists can see this. That means there is no end. But that is the very same place 
that the wicked are thrown. Um, so I, I think a, a very fair conclusion is that hell is a place in which it lasts forever and ever. It number one, it, it the the fire is eternal. Number two, the place itself is eternal. Number three, the pain, the torment is eternal. Number four, the smoke is eternal. Number five, the destruction is eternal. And so I'm going to suggest that scripture is very clear on this. There, it, the concept of annihilationism is not biblical. Does the concept of hell create an affront to our senses? I would have to suggest, yes, it does. And that is not God's fault. That is mine. There is something about my sinful nature, I would suggest, that keeps me from fully comprehending God's justice in its entirety. Not just because I'm finite in mind, but I'm sinful in my nature. You never ask a criminal who's been declared guilty, so how long would you like to spend in prison? Well, let me ask you, would you like a few days in prison or the life or, or, or the death sentence? Which one do you think they're going to choose? Okay, you can't ask a criminal how long would you want to be punished. They, they, they don't have this bearing, this sense of justice at that moment because it's them. And so this idea of hell to us is, is an affront to our senses. And I'm, I'm going to say that it is in part because I am sinful and I can't grasp it. I can't fully understand this idea of hell. It is beyond me. Um, and so just because, though, I don't understand hell, I have to look to Scripture, and Scripture is clear. It is a, it is a place. It is real. It's eternal. It produces everlasting destruction and everlasting pain, torment. If the pain is eternal, then that means that me, the wicked, suffering, experiencing the pain, because they're feeling it, that's what pain is, right? If I'm going to experience eternal pain, it is only because I am enduring that forever and ever, okay? If the pain is eternal, so am I, okay? You, you follow that, right? So I think we're left with some very clear conclusions about this idea of hell that scripture teaches us, whether we like the conclusion or not, God in his infinite justice has declared it so. And so we live with that. At this point, any questions? Because I did see some hands being raised. Stephen. Stephen? Hi. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so because fire requires The fire that we have experienced, correct. Okay, so, but we're not, we're not saying that those earthly properties are necessarily uh, required for this eternal life. Correct, and we would say that because how can our earthly fire, um, the, the properties of that fire of hell, 
appear to be different than the properties of the fire that we experience in this life. Okay, Aisha, did you have a question? Um, I was just going to ask if you thought it would be more like lava and less like um, a fire pit. Like a fire pit already built. What would be the difference, though? A fire from a fire pit, what's being consumed in the fire pit? What's causing the fire? Because lava is what's causing the fire of a lava flow. What's causing the fire of a fire pit? Because it could be both. I don't know. It could be like lava and it could be like a fire pit. They're not mutually exclusive. A pit is confined. This does talk about a lake. I'm not going to say it's expansive in every direction eternally. I, it, it doesn't Scripture doesn't seem to say that. Um, there is an interesting concept that this takes place before the, the holy angels and before the throne of God. Did you see that in Revelation 14? Um <clears throat> and again, here, here we are. I, I would definitely say that hell will not be on display for all of eternity for us to view. I can't imagine that. Um, we do see in Hades, there's a gulf. They seem to be able to see across this gulf. Um, and it, it's certainly possible that when it says that it's taking place before the throne, um, well, we could really get into some weird science here just to try and bring this concept into our universe and our understanding of reality. And, uh, and I fear doing that, but, you know, if you stick your body through a wormhole and you're suddenly you're on the other side of the universe, you're not just two feet away. Um, so I don't know if that's what's going on here, but the, the science and the stuff that makes up the reality of eternity is going to be different than the stuff that makes up our reality. There's got to be some qualitative difference there, okay? And the laws of science will at least in some way be different. And so, you know, even though it takes place before them, does not mean that that burning and the eternal, the, the, the uh, smoke that rises forever and ever from these people in the in the burning sulfur that happens before the throne, the Lamb of the throne, the throne of the Lamb, and the holy angels is going to be that way forever now. It's just a picture at that moment. Okay, uh, Leanne, question. Does this tie in like in the Psalms when they, they you know, we're told the wicked we won't see the wicked they'll be removed from our sight. Does that relate to this? Uh, Certainly. I think that we are going to, at least for a moment, see the reward of the wicked. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do not believe that it will be something that will last forever and ever. Number one, heaven will come to earth. And there will be no tears. There will be no suffering. Will we be able to view the pains of our earthly life and not be struck with sadness, remorse, and regret? If we say that we will not remember our past life, then that means we will not remember our salvation story. And I think that's going to be the most important thing that we're going to carry into eternity. 
but our hearts will be so captivated with the joy of our redemption that the very fact that we lived in rebellion against Christ will not consume us with regret and tears in eternity. We will be consumed with the other half of the story. We've been redeemed and rescued and the penalty paid. Okay? And so, anyways, I, I, I do believe that we will retain our redemptive story, personal redemptive story, throughout all of history. We will certainly not glory, as many do, in their sins. And, and, and by that, in many testimonies, people tend to very, very much so emphasize their past sinful life. And then, oh yes, and by the way, I got saved. And man, what if, in heaven it's going to be totally different, man. And then I was, I was caught in, in the sin of life and uh, hit rock bottom. But Christ came through and his light broke through into my deep depression and my darkness. And his light consumed my darkness. And, and see, this will be the stuff of our testimony. It certainly will not be a glorifying of our sin, but a true glorifying of what Christ has done, his grace demonstrated in our life. So to what degree do we remember our past? I don't know. I do know this, that it will no longer bring such grief to us. And the only conclusion I can come to is that the grace of God Whatever we remember of our past life, the grace of God will be, it will be seen through the filter of God's grace. Let me put it that way. And no more bring remorse and tears. Cole, question? I don't know if you want to comment. When I was a kid, well, you asked earlier about fire and light. Talk about, you know, that there's fire and that there's light. You know, can you to be in darkness and yet there's fire? When I was a kid, uh, a scientist had discovered, a, you know, it was kind of how it got there, by the way. The scientists had discovered that uh, there's, there's, you could make a way of, of making a fire that gave off absolutely no light. Interesting. And I don't remember any more about it than that. Interesting. Yeah. I'd be interested in knowing what his recipe is. Here's the research. Yeah, right here. okay. Do you happen to remember, Brian? Um, I was looking into rocket propellants recently, and there is. <laughs> So no color, no light. So hell will be hydrogen peroxide or fire. Anyways, uh, whatever's being consumed, though, is I would imagine is what gives off that property of light and color and such. Any other comments or questions? All right. Um, I want to conclude with this last little bit here in, in Luke 12. Just turn in your Bibles, if you will. It's under eternal punishment for the wicked. <clears throat> and I'm not going to tell you uh, that I personally think I got the, the corner on this truth. I certainly don't believe I do. But I, I'm just trying to understand what this teaches here in Revel. Excuse me, in Luke 12, 46 to 48, and Jesus is using a parable. He's talking about a master. He's talking about um, a servant. How the servant is 
put in charge of everything that the master possesses, um, but he is unfaithful in his duties. He beats the men servants and maid servants, eats, drinks, gets drunk, etc. And then it says in verse 26, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. I have to confess, I do not understand this idea of cut to pieces, except that that would be equivalent to destruction or perishing, um, ruin, the, the bursting of the wineskin. It's ruined, it's useless. It's rendered useless. When we're cut to pieces, we're obviously rendered useless, correct? Um, and, and so I, I, it, this is parabolic language. I think that perhaps this is what it is alluding to, and he's assigned a place with the unbelievers. Matthew 24 says a place of the hypocrites. Um, same place, correct? Verse 47, the servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants, will be beaten with many blows. And then Jesus wants to bring home a point, and he uses the word but for contrast in verse 48. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. From the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I think that these blows would be um, expressing accountability, responsibility. You knew what you should do. You knew the truth. And you chose to rebel against it and do what you wanted to do. And then we move into this concept of punishment in which it says that they are those who know the truth and still don't do it are beaten with many blows. Those who do not know the truth and, of course, don't do it. That is the will of the Father, believing in his Son, Jesus Christ, and following him. They are beaten with fewer blows. And I, I think that there it's fair, even Dante gets into this in his um, the Inferno, in which he suggests, he suggests seven, if I'm not mistaken, seven levels of hell. Seven levels of punishment for different crimes. And um, I, I might be mistaken, but he may reference or, or look to Revelation 20, verse 8 that I read. And those are the different levels of hell depending on the heinousness of your crime, your sin. But it does seem that Jesus here at least divides punishment into two categories. Those who know the truth and don't do it. Who reject Jesus. Turn away, don't follow him. They will be beaten. Their, their punishment will be more severe. Those who don't know the truth, but they are still held responsible. Okay? We, we cannot ever deny the existence of God and therefore the claim that God has on us and therefore our accountability to him. Romans 1 makes this clear. There's no excuse for us. We see his, what does it say, his power and eternal uh, nature in creation, and we will be called to account for it, whether we know Jesus or not. So the bottom line is we will suffer for our sins. Those who know the truth will suffer more than those who do not know the truth. 
So I would suggest that there are different levels of hell. I see at least two here. There could be more, at least two. Uh, and so punishment will be meted out according to the crime. That is an Old Testament principle. It carries over into the new. Life for life, tooth for tooth. So the crime meets the punishment. Um, it will last forever, though, because it is an eternal offense. Stephen, question, comment? Oh, yeah, so I'm looking at the, some of the Greek reports in the study this week. Apparently it was like an ancient Near East like form of punishment that kings, that kings gave to their like servants who disobeyed them. If they were um, double-minded, or if they tried to like serve the king in like some foreign power, uh, where they would literally like take a sword and cut their body in half. Okay. Um, I'm not seeing that so much in the Old Testament, this being written to Jews, especially um, the, the Gospels. Uh, I, I would want to lean a little bit more to the Old Testament. And so I would, if, if I were to try and find an allusion to this in the Old Testament, I would do so um, with regard to the sacrifices. If you remember when Abraham was in a deep sleep and... God had taken sacrifices and cut them in half, and then a burning pot walked between these sacrifices that were cut in half. The That's used in the Old Testament, and uh, a Jew would understand that concept because the punishment for breaking this covenant that you made with this person is that you would be cut in pieces just like the sacrifices. Um the, the very fact that God is offering us a covenant, we reject it, um, would seem, therefore, to, this punishment being cut into pieces would there seem to me to be allude would seem to allude to that practice. Though what you're suggesting may be somewhat similar to that passage in what is it, uh, Genesis 15. So, um, cut into pieces again. Um, our resurrected bodies cut into pieces. Uh, I don't know if that's what's going to be happening, but the idea of ruined destruction is certainly at least uh, going to be the concept. What, what version is where it says cut to pieces? Because I'm reading the NIV. Okay, because um, in like in the commentary it says it's, they use the word asunder instead of pieces. Cut asunder. Okay. And it says that that's a more of a literal translation. All right. Um, and it, so cut in two? Right. So it literally means divided. Okay. You'll be cut in half. Which is what happened to the animal sacrifices. They were cut in half and laid out. The parties joining in this covenant would walk between these cut pieces. So... <clears throat> um, let, let me just, again, highlight the, the purpose of any kind of discussion on heaven or hell, or, or excuse me, hell or Hades, has got to be this idea of God's just retribution for sin. It is not preached because we are trying to scare people into hell, but we do want them to realize that there is a just punishment for their sin. And there is only one way out, only one, not many ways, one, and that is the cross of Christ. 
That is the grace of God. We must run to the grace of God. If you enter into a discussion on hell and it is going to offend the senses of the person that you're speaking with, just remind them that regardless of what you believe about hell and how you don't think it fits in with what love, your definition of love, that is what God tells me through the Bible, but he does provide a way of escape. And so that is what I'm going to offer to you right now. Those who believe in Jesus Christ will not perish, but have everlasting life. He who believes has, possesses right now eternal life. This is the testimony that God sent his how does it go? That God sent his, um, and this is the testimony. Well, I'm not sure I'm going to get that right. Um, but then it goes on and it says, and this life is in his son. Whoever believes in the son has life. Whoever does not believe in the son of God does not have life. It says that, by, that we were, by nature, objects of wrath. Ephesians 2 Two, four. We were by nature, by our sinful nature, apart from Christ by nature, we were objects of his wrath. And so the unbeliever, it's not that the wrath of God visits them on the day of judgment. It has already and continues to visit them. It remains on them. And John the Baptist uh, makes it very clear in, in John chapter 3, he is, that's in his discourse where he's saying, I must decrease and he must increase, referring to Jesus. It's the very same chapter, of course, where Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's verse 16, verse 36. Let me skip back to verse 35. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. <coughs> and so I'm going to suggest God's wrath remains on them. There's only one way out of this predicament, and that is whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And if you reject the Son, God's wrath just continues to remain on you. There is hope, there is a future for all of those, though, who choose to believe in Jesus Christ, surrender their lives to him, make him the master, them the servant, surrender their will, therefore, to him, not my will, but yours be done, and do the will of the Father. Those who trust in Jesus in this way, they have eternal life, and they will live forever and ever, and they will never, ever, ever experience the fires of hell. For whoever chooses to believe, those who endure to the end, they will be saved. Now, they are, but that salvation, they will be saved, is referring to this eternal state that we're going to talk about next week. And I'm going to encourage you to read those verses for next week. Um, I, it's next week, I, I'm going to be... Uh, we, we there is a traditional way to teach, to teach heaven, okay? I am going to assume you guys have heard enough about heaven. And so what I am going to do is I'm going to have us look at certain aspects of heaven that we don't always necessarily think about, but has very broad implications as far as what this heaven will be like.
Because what I want to be able to do, and I'm going to repeat this at the beginning of next week, I want us to erase this concept of hell being boring, of hell being little cupids playing harps on clouds, and you joining with them off key. Um, heaven will be nothing like that. It will be the most awesome experience of your life Whatever vacation you've ever had that you just thought to yourself as you were relaxing, maybe looking out at the beach, I hope this never ends. And you know it will. But that moment will be your eternity. And and times ten, our eternity will far surpass any experience. The day you got married, uh, any experience that you have had in life, because... There's so much that will that will be given to us in that day that we will experience. Uh, and it's that that I want to get into. I, I want to kind of break this traditional mold of talking about heaven that in all honesty, I'm trying to remember the name of the person. I'll try and bring it, his quote next week. Um, Randy Alcorn quotes it in his book, Heaven, and introduces a particular chapter with it. But it's an atheist that's exactly who it is, actually. Um, Isaac Asimov was a, an atheist, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to butcher his quote, so I'm just going to paraphrase it. But he says, I would never want to become a Christian because heaven is so boring. And I would never not want to become a Christian because heaven will be so incredibly glorious and pleasant. Um, So somehow the world has received a false message of what heaven is like. And I invite you, read those passages of scripture, come next week, let's engage in this, because it will probably be more of a discussion than today was, uh, but let's engage in that discussion. um, Because there are certain verses that will imply certain things. We want to be careful with speculation but it opens the door to a whole new understanding of what heaven is going to be like. Most people think that heaven is going to be in the sky and and it's not going to be on earth, but John made it very clear that ain't going to be the case. It will be on earth, all right? Um, So, a lot to cover next week. Uh, Let me close in prayer right now. Father, I want to thank you that even though we may not understand these concepts of hell, they, they, they feel abrasive to our, to our, our nature, God, because we are fallen and, and we just don't understand your supreme justice. But God, we know, have, we know hell is so real. Those who are thrown in it will be forever terrified. Father, I know one, one pastor said many years ago, I think with the Salvation Army, he said, if I could just have my men experience hell for 60 seconds, it would transform them into super evangelists. Father, I I, I certainly thank you that we will not even have to experience hell for 60 seconds, but God, we need to fully understand this thing called hell because it is so real and the world is going there in a handbasket. And they are clueless. And some of them do know the truth and they will be punished more because they continue to reject it. But God, would you please help us as we spread the truth that many, many 
would be rescued. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.